before we uh, continue our Jesus is Greater series from the book of Hebrews this morning, let's pray together. Father, uh, you are a good, good father as we just sang, and uh, you continue to shower us with good, good gifts and good blessings. Uh, And Lord, I pray that uh, as we dive into your word, as we dive into the book of Hebrews this morning, uh, what you have for us is good. Father, what you have for us is good for us. Um, whether, we, whether, whether we like it uh, or whether it frustrates us, Father, I pray that the words that we hear from your word uh, will be good for our soul. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So I became a dad on August 7th, 2005. Uh, it was the day my, my oldest son was born. Uh, before that day, I had never changed a diaper in my whole life. Uh, and the only baby I had ever held was my little sister when I was nine years old. And, uh, and so Sarah and I, we read all the parenting books. We read what to expect when you're expecting because, you know, we're expected to read the book. And uh, we went to the classes and we listened uh, to advice. Um, I, I still remember one of the classes we went to. It was, it was, it was uh, at the hospital and um, the, the, the woman that was teaching the class was talking about how sometimes a husband will gain sympathy weight during a pregnancy. And she's like, Does, has anyone, any of you guys experienced that? And like, I looked around and guys were raising their hands like, oh, okay, we were in a safe space. So I, you know, like, me too. And, and she's like, oh, how much, how much have you gained? And she like called on me first. And I kind of looked around. I was like, I don't know, like 27 pounds. And she's like, <laughs> I was like, I mean, two, two pounds is what I gained. Um, so yeah, I used my wife's pregnancy as an excuse to eat unlimited things as well. I gained, I gained a lot of weight um, when my wife was pregnant, which makes no sense at all. Um, but we, uh, we re- listened to all the advice, we read all the books, but nothing, nothing prepared me for the panic, the sheer panic that I felt when I held my son for the first time at the hospital. Like looking down at this fragile, tiny human being and realizing, this is on me. Like, I'm responsible for this. Who let that happen? (laughs) I think the fact that kids can't remember the first three or four years of life is one of God's greatest blessings to parents in the history of humanity. I love that. About God loves me so much that my kids don't remember what happened before they were four. That's a huge gift. Um, I I was, because I was learning on the job, man. I didn't know what I was doing at all. My kids aren't in here, fortunately. This is amazing. I didn't know what I was doing at all. I still don't. (laughs) I'm just kind of trying stuff. Once, I put a diaper on inside out. Anybody ever do that? Inside out. How do you do that? The texture is completely different. Inside out, diaper. Another time, no joke. Not even kidding or exaggerating. My kid pooped in my eye. My eye! How? What are the physics of that? (laughs) Super weird baby. One time, so one time I'm laying on the couch watching a football game, and he's crying, because that's what he does, and uh, he's in the baby swing, and I'm thinking, all right, I got to get him out of the swing, but I'm so tired. So I reach over to the baby swing, thinking, you know, I'll just get him, and I'm like halfing attention to the football game, and I reach over the baby swing and unbuckle, and the thing like pitches back, and he like pitched forward. He was like two months old. He like pitches forward, and then it had my full attention. Like, whoa! And I caught him by his ankle, upside down, and I just stared. Like, look what I did. And like, and my wife was in the room, and she's like, 
pick him up. <laughs> oh, right, yeah, yeah. I shouldn't keep him upside down like that for very long. <laughs> he almost fell on his head. I also used to, this is, I, I, I don't admit this to everyone, but safe space, right? I also used to flick Cheez-It crackers at my two-month-old son's face. Because here's my thinking, right? I'm his dad. It's my job to help this kid build up his reflexes. <laughs> so I used to flick crackers at his face, and I used to say, block it, block it. And he, and he was sitting there getting hit in the forehead with crackers, and he never blocked them. See, there's a reason I don't volunteer in the nursery. That's, there's a reason I'm in here and not with your children. <laughs> I work with the kids who are older because when I flick Cheez-Its at their face, they can, most of them, block them, right? I am not a good, good father. That's, that's God's designation. <laughs> I had this group of guys that met in my house for accountability and Bible study back then, a group of high school guys, and they loved hanging out with baby Seth. They uh, adopted Seth uh, as one of the guys, one of the, one of the group. And uh, one night we were, uh, we were eating those red Twizzlers, those, those red vines, and uh, one of the guys asked if Seth could have one, one of, those, one of these red Twizzlers. And I did some quick math in my head, and I figured, yeah, three months is probably old enough for a kid to have a red Twizzler. <laughs> And so uh, it's not like he had teeth or anything. He wasn't going to choke. He wasn't going to bite a piece off of it. We'd already let him try a pickle because, you know, I like torturing my kids. And so, and so we gave him one. We gave him a red Twizzler, three months old. Uh, and my wife, not amused. <laughs> she got home and she found three-month-old Seth happily gumming this red Twizzler covered head to toe in pink drool. He had one of those white onesies on it. It was never white again. <laughs> And, uh, and I learned a lesson that day. I learned a, a valuable parenting lesson that I'm going to pass on to you. It's a good tip. And here's the lesson. Babies can't eat solid food. That's the lesson. Babies can't eat Twizzlers. It's not a good idea, right? And it's not, it's not just that they shouldn't. Like a lot of things we do, it's like, well, it's probably better if we don't or better if we... No, it's not that they shouldn't. If they can't. They can't. They can't handle it. There's no teeth in there, right? Uh, and then there is, and that's a whole other phase of parenting that I don't even talk about, but uh, they can't handle the solid food, literally can't handle it. And I'm happy to report that Seth eventually graduated to solid food. Uh, and now that he's almost a teenager, he eats everything that there could ever be, and there's no food in my house ever, right? But if he were, if he were to turn down a steak, because he's a steak and potatoes guy like me, if he were to turn down a steak like today after church, like I'm going to grill some steaks because I'm crazy and it's cold, but I'm going to grill some steaks and if he was like, you know, dad, I don't want a steak. I want some Gerber baby sweet potatoes. That's weird, right? There's something wrong with that, something wrong with my son uh, if he wanted sweet potatoes, baby food instead of a steak, but that's exactly what is happening in the book of Hebrews. In our passage today, that's exactly what is happening with these people. Instead of growing up in the faith, they're regressing back to spiritual infancy. They're, they're becoming babies again instead of maturing to adulthood. And in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, which is where we're going to start, the author suddenly breaks off from talking about how Jesus is greater, and he confronts the audience with this problem of their spiritual immaturity. Um, so look with me at Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 11 and we're going to read a little way into chapter 6. Hebrews 5.11 says, We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. 
Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of this coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. The author of Hebrews just finished introducing the idea that Jesus is greater than the high priest. The beginning of chapter five makes this introductory comparison that Jesus is greater than the high priest. And there's a lot more coming about that, a lot more to say about that, in, which we'll get to in chapter seven as we move through this book. But, uh, but before we continue to that, before we pick back up talking about Jesus and the high priest, we get this warning. We get this warning that Jesus demands, a greater Jesus demands a greater commitment to faith. And, and the author goes on to unpack this. The author accuses the audience of no longer trying to understand. And that phrase literally means that the audience is negligent in their hearing. They, they become out of shape and lazy when it comes to their spiritual growth. They've been in the church for a long time, long enough, to, long enough that by now they ought to be the ones teaching. So we know that they're not new believers. They've been in the church for a long time, long enough that they should be able uh, to teach this by now, but instead of being able to teach this, they're stuck. They should have moved up to the adult table, but they keep acting like babies. See, God expects us to grow. God expects spiritual growth. It's true that God loves you enough to accept you just the way you are. That is, that is true. But sometimes when we hear that, God loves me just as I am, we think that God doesn't want me to change. God loves me. God loves you just the way you are. Absolutely true. You know what else is true? God loves you too much to leave you just the way you are. He's not done with you. And so God loves you. He accepts you just as you are, but he expects growth. Eventually, we have to grow up and stop being babies. And instead of growing up, the audience of Hebrews needed to repeat grades in elementary school. The, the, the author says that, that, that they, they need the elementary teachings all over again. By now they should know their letters and their numbers, but they keep going over the ABCs instead of learning how to read. 
They've been taught all the basics, but they never moved past them. They never, uh, they never grew, and so they have to learn them all over again. And at the start of chapter six, the author gives us a list of basics. He doesn't leave these to the imagination. He starts laying out what he means by the elementary truths, by the basics of the faith. The first step toward following Jesus is what he says, repentance from acts that lead to death and faith in God. It's this two-sided process of turning away from our sin and turning toward God. Repentance is away from sin. Faith is toward God. That's the beginning of the journey. And so that's the starting point. And then he talks about cleansing. Uh, the, 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 before, the NIV, before they updated the language in the NIV, it used to say baptisms, and that is somewhat confusing because one, why plural? Why, why baptisms? Does this mean we should be baptized a bunch of times? Uh, and I think when they up- updated the language, I think that what they say about cleansing rites clarifies this better. Um, baptism brings to mind Christian baptism, uh, these cleansing rites is more about like what the Jewish culture used to do in ceremonially washing themselves to become clean. And, and, and this also was something that happened at the beginning of a faith process, right? These uh, ceremonial, these cleansings and laying on hands, those are both outward practices that mark the beginning of a commitment to Jesus, that, that we're accepting God's forgiveness, this, this cleansing, this washing, we're accepting that God forgives me uh, and then the laying out of hands is usually associated with a call to ministry. So I am accepting that God forgives me and I'm accepting that he has something for me. He has something for me to do and a way for me to live, uh, he, that he calls me to serve. Uh, and, and then the end, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, those are both things that God promises are coming at the end times uh, as we read our scriptures. And so they lay out these basics and, and it makes sense. You know, the basics describe a person who turns away from sin and toward God, someone who accepts God's forgiveness and God's call to serve, and someone who believes God's promises about the way things are going to play out in the end. That is someone who has graduated elementary school. That is, that is like a middle school Christian. Someone who is that far in the process. But the thing is, graduation's still a long way away. That's, that is basic, but that's not enough to live a full, mature, adult, Christian life. That's a good start. That's a foundation. But if that's all we ever do, if we keep going back to that, if we keep struggling with that, if we can never accept that, then we are like the audience in Hebrews who is just living on milk and never moving to the adult table, never bringing in the solid food that we were uh, meant to have. To move forward, we have to leave elementary school behind. That's the natural process. You don't stay in elementary school, you move on. Um, And that doesn't mean that we disregard the things that we learned there. That would be ridiculous. If we went to elementary school and now we're in middle school, we're like, well, I mean, I guess that's what we do. But now we're in middle school, we're like, forget all that stuff. I don't need those ABCs anymore. You know, we we don't disregard it, but it becomes second nature to us. We, we, We don't disregard the alphabet when we learn to read. We integrate the alphabet into the next step of what we're doing. If we're still learning the alphabet in high school, something went wrong with our education. Like the alphabet, that's, that's basic stuff that was supposed to happen a long time ago, right? You should know the alphabet by now if, if you're in high school. I hope that's not news to you, by the way, <laughs> you, you high school students in the room. Um, we might expect here that, that the author is gonna take a deep breath, I'm like frustrated with these people, but like, okay, like a teacher. We all had teachers that did this, right? Take a deep teacher breath, right? And then 
go back over the basics again. Because that's what we do, right? When someone needs the basics again, we start over. When we're teaching, when we're coaching, like, okay, it looks like we're not ready for this. We're gonna have to go back to this thing that you should know by now. But that's not what, he, that's not what this author does. Instead of doing that, instead of going back over and reteaching the basics, this author says, grow up. This is stuff you're supposed to know. This is stuff you're supposed to live. This is, this is stuff that's supposed to be already accomplished. I'm not spending time there. It's on you to grow up. He pushes them away from the kid's table towards the adult table and wants them to grow up. And that begs the question, what makes the adult table different from the kid's table? I mean, aside from the fact that there's better food there. Anybody ever have to go back to the kids' table after they became an adult? I did. That's a slap in the face, right? <laughs> You're supposed to go to the adult table. What, what makes it different? What makes a person mature spiritually? Well, the, the beauty of this passage is that there's, no, there's not guesswork. There, he lays this stuff out beautifully. First, they can handle solid food. That, that's a mark of maturity. When someone can handle solid food, when you give them a Twizzler, they don't drool all over themselves. They... <laughs> <laughs> Seth isn't in here so I can make fun of him also he doesn't remember that they read they study the Bible right they study the Bible on their own but also together with others not just on their own they dig into hard teachings they're not afraid to, to, to look into the hard stuff they want to find out what it is that God wants them to do and what God wants them to be they explore what they believe they explore why they believe it they explore whether what they believe lines up with what God's, what God's word says or whether somewhere along the line they went off the rails and accepted something that isn't in scripture they, they are thoroughly interested and involved in solid food the solid food of God's word. The second thing is they've trained themselves to know good from evil. That's right in this passage. That they make decisions in their life based on applying God's word to their circumstances. They study the Bible, but it's not just academic. They take it into their life and it lives through them. They make these decisions based on what God's word says. They know how to make right choices when they're confronted with important decisions because they have a, a steady diet of solid food. And that solid food leads them in the right direction, helps them make the wise choices. And third, they can explain the basics of faith to others. That it says that by now, you ought to be teachers. Now, not everyone has to be a teacher in a classroom. That's not everyone's skill set. That's not everyone's gifts. But everyone ought to, mature Christians ought to, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that they have. We ought to be able to lead someone through our story and what Jesus has done for us and how it's changed us. And this isn't the only place in scripture where we're called to maturity. There are other places in scripture where maturity is the goal. James chapter one, verse two through four says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So here we see that a mature person is able to endure in faith when things get difficult in life. Clinging to Jesus when life spins out of control 
is a sure sign that a person is headed toward maturity. That is a mature faith decision that I'm gonna hold on to Jesus. Fortunately, God doesn't expect us to endure. He doesn't expect us to cling to Jesus alone. Another passage about maturity is Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And that says, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So Paul teaches here that someone who's spiritually mature is connected to the church and engaged in ministry. They're helping others grow. They're speaking the truth in love. Those are all things that you can't do alone. You have to be in community. We get this wrong when we focus our spiritual growth on ourselves. This, it's a, that's a very American thing to do, is to be very individualistic. That I'm gonna go into my prayer closet, I'm gonna knuckle down, I'm gonna read my Bible, I'm gonna, nothing, nothing's wrong with any of those things. But if that's the, the sum total of our spiritual growth, if we are growing alone and not in community, then we will never become spiritually mature believers. Because to do that, we need one another. According to Ephesians, Paul doesn't mince words. According to Ephesians, you can't be spiritually mature by yourself. Not possible. Serving others and worshiping together are essential for spiritual growth. Not just feel like it, not just good idea. If you want to grow, it has to be together. Not that you can't grow alone. There's, there's a, 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 an amount that you can grow on your own, but you can't become mature the way the Bible lays it out alone. And so back to the Hebrews passage. In, in, in verse four of chapter six, the author breaks into this warning. As if what he said already isn't challenging enough about graduating to solid food and leaving the milk behind, he, he gets into this warning. And it's a warning for the people who are regressing towards becoming babies again, rather than growing toward maturity. And it's one of the most controversial passages in all of the New Testament. So thanks, Steve, for giving me this passage to preach on. <laughs> I didn't know he was going to be here for me to thank him personally. <laughs> so before we wrap up today, by looking at the, the, the application, the practical ways that we can become more spiritually mature, so I'm going to leave the practical stuff for like picking up the pieces after this, we have to listen closely to this warning. We can't gloss over this because it's hard, but it's, but it's there. It's in scripture. And if we're gonna be mature Christians, if we're gonna eat solid food, we can't gloss over the hard stuff. And so we need to look at this. Um, and so this is what it says, starting in verse four. It says, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming, of, coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance, to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. This is difficult. So I want to walk through it one phrase at a time. Because I want to figure out what's going on here the best that we can. 
So first of all, we have this phrase, those who have been enlightened. It's, I'm gonna, it's impossible for those who have been enlightened. Who are these people? Those who have been enlightened. Now, it's not some secret knowledge. Like there's this, uh, this cult of Gnosticism back in the day that said that there was a secret knowledge that you had to have in order to come into a relationship with God. That's not what this means. Those who have once been enlightened. All this means is those who have been exposed to the gospel. Someone, someone who uh, ha, so, has had the word of God, who has had the good news about Jesus shared with them, uh, they've heard the basics. They've been to elementary school uh, when it comes to the faith. They've heard these things. They're familiar, those who have once been enlightened. And then he goes on to talk about uh, these things that they've tasted. Uh, and the word tasted just means experienced. Some people try to, get, try to like skirt around this passage by saying tasted just means that they had like a little taste. Uh, and, then, and then that then informs the whole rest of the interpretation. But I think that's an abuse of what the word is. The, the common understanding of the idea of the word tasted is that you experience something. When you taste a meal, when you eat a meal, you've experienced the meal, you've tasted it. So these people have tasted, they experienced the heavenly gift. And that typically means God's blessings that go with salvation. They have experienced in some way God's blessings, God's rescue in their life. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, whether that means that they've had the Holy Spirit personally or shared in the work of the Holy Spirit is really up for debate. We're not sure. But in some way, some form, they've shared in the Holy Spirit and they experienced, again, they tasted the word of God. They've experienced it. They've tasted his power in the world, the things that God is able to do. And then it talks about these people, these people who have had all of these experiences that have gone through all of these basics, all of of these tastings, sharing in the Holy Spirit. And if all that's true, and then even after all of it, they fall away. Now, fall away. Fall away can mean go astray. To like set your foot off the path, get kind of lost. And people that want this passage to mean uh, that, that God will always take everyone back no matter what really focus on that idea that go astray just means they lost their way for a bit, but they can come back, no problem, no big deal. Except for the next verse. The next verse that says that they're crucifying Jesus all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. What the author says that they're doing, the effects of their falling away are so harsh that this has to mean that they've turned their back on Jesus. By falling away, it means they rejected Jesus. They rejected him as their high priest. They've rejected him as their savior. And so what it all comes down to is all the way back at the beginning of this passage where it says it's impossible This word, impossible, fascinating word, it means impossible. (laughs) And I wish it didn't. I wish it meant something else. I wish there was some kind of Greek word study with layers and layers of meaning and there just isn't. And that doesn't sit well. I don't like that at all. I don't like that word, impossible. Because other places in scripture, it says what's impossible with man is possible with God. I don't like this word, impossible. This doesn't ring true for me as a Christian. Impossible. It's impossible for those who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. It's impossible? Really? Does that mean that if someone turns away from God, they can never turn back again? It might. That's why, this is so, that's why this passage is so controversial. It might. It might mean that. 
there are many Bible scholars that think that's exactly what this means. But I'm not so sure. Because up to this point, looking at the whole book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews has been arguing for the supremacy of Christ, that Jesus is greater than the angels, that he's greater than Moses, that he's greater than the high priest, that Jesus is greater. And true repentance, turning away from our sin and turning toward God is only possible because of Jesus' sacrifice once and for all for our sins, the sacrifice that the author of Hebrews just finished talking about at the beginning of chapter five, the section right before this. So if someone turns their back on Jesus, like this, like this section describes, like these verses describe, someone turns their back on Jesus, they are turning their back on the only one who is able to forgive their sins before God. So repentance, turning back to God, is impossible without Jesus. Turning back to God can't happen without Jesus. So what the author says is true. If someone turns their back on God, they can't embrace repentance because repentance comes through Jesus. Acts 4.12 says salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. A true relationship with God results in a lifestyle of obedience to God. Faith leads to action. And in spite of God's blessings, some people fail to produce fruit. That's the, the, the author of Hebrews, the next couple verses, he jumps into this like farming, agricultural metaphor of producing fruit and not producing fruit. Some people fail to produce fruit, the fruit of an obedient life, the fruit of growing to spiritual maturity. They fail to do that. They never really allow themselves to be changed by God's power. They may have experienced it once upon a time, but they never really let God in. They never really welcome God's spirit into their lives and give him access to change everything. They never really submit their will to God's will like Jesus in the garden saying, this is what I want, but what I want doesn't matter. Your will be done. They never do that. Spiritual maturity and bearing fruit go together because faith without works is dead. And we all have a choice to make. Will I grow or will I fall away? That's the warning here. If we insist on staying spiritual babies, if we refuse to grow toward maturity, if we turn up our nose at solid food for our whole life, then status quo doesn't seem to be what's in our future. This warning about falling away is much more likely to happen if we refuse to grow. So we have a choice to make. Will I grow or will I fall away? Will I produce fruit or will I produce thorns? Will I eat solid food or will I stick to milk? And in this section today, the author of Hebrews starts by challenging us to grow up, to, to stop being spiritual babies and become mature. And then he warns us in the section we just talked about to watch out that if we're not growing toward God, we could eventually fall away. And thankfully, he ends by telling us how to avoid that. And this ending of this passage, the author of Hebrews encourages us to press on. He promises that God will not forget your work. He won't forget the love you've shown him by helping his people. He challenges us to show diligence and avoid becoming lazy in our faith. 
And this passage in Hebrews lays out four clear ways. I'm like all over the map with like three points, four points, two points, right? Four clear ways to press on towards spiritual maturity. You want to be spiritually mature? Four things. First, we eat solid food and we stop settling for milk. When John had his vision that became the book of Revelation, in his vision, the angel handed him a scroll, a scroll of the word of God. And he told him, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth, it will be as sweet as honey. If you want to be spiritually mature, you need to eat this book. Don't just read it like a novel. Don't just study it like a textbook. Consume it like a meal, a meal that gives life to your bones and heats up the blood in your veins because the pages of this book are filled with the words of God himself. Consume this book and let it consume you. That's how you eat solid food. You submit your life to this book. No other book, this one, not this copy, the Bible, right? Eat solid food, not baby food. Next, we gotta produce fruit. James says that faith by itself, if it's not accompanied with action, is dead. If you wanna be spiritually mature and not have dead faith, you have to contribute to God's kingdom. It's not enough to sit in your prayer closet at home and pray and study God's word all by yourself. If you're consuming God's word, it will change you. Yes, it will change the way you think, but it will also change the way you act. It will also change the way you post on social media. That one's free. (laughs) The spiritually mature live lives of obedience to God across the board, everywhere, not just in some sections. The third way to become spiritually mature is to show diligence. Right from this passage in Hebrews, he challenges challenges us to be diligent. Uh, And and that word just means to be meaningfully engaged, right? To, to, To be part of it. And when we stay meaningfully engaged in the work of God and in his love for people, we can be confident in our hope for the future. We don't leave our our spiritual growth to chance. Meaningful engagement means we play a part, that we are engaged in our growing. We don't just sit around and wait that maybe someday God will magically change us into a mature Christian. We join him in the work he's doing, right? We, We practice spiritual disciplines, Best definition I ever heard for a spiritual discipline. A spiritual discipline is something I can do right now, something I can do right now that will help me to receive God's grace and do something I can't do eventually. Okay, so what does that mean? Let's say someone hurt you, right? Hypothetical, I'm sure that never happened. Let's say someone hurt you. And God calls you, and you know this, God calls you to forgive them. But man, that's hard. That's not something I can do right now. God doesn't say, oh, well, can't be a Christian, bye. Right? God's cool with that. But God's not cool with that if that's forever. God wants you meaningfully engaged in growing toward maturity. So that means I can't forgive someone right now. Yeah, but what can I do right now? Maybe I can pray that they'll find Jesus. Maybe I can pray that I won't hate them so much. Maybe I have to back up even before that. Maybe I can pray that I won't hate them so much. Maybe that's that's the step. Maybe that's something I can do right now so that eventually I can do something more. But not doing anything right now because that's too hard, 
That's not an avenue God leaves open to us. Just saying, throwing our hands up in the air and saying, forget it, I'm done. That's really not an option for a spiritually mature believer. We are meaningfully engaged in our own growth to maturity. Occasionally I go for a run. I stress occasionally. (laughs) I couldn't possibly go out and run a marathon later today I, I would die, I think. <laughs> I, I don't believe it's possible or it could happen. I would have to train over time uh, in order to do that. But I do believe, I think, that if I put in the training, and maybe more important than that, if I stayed motivated long enough to actually do a marathon, I believe I could do it. I, I could, I've run, I've run a 5K. Um, I know a marathon's a lot more than that, but if I kept training and stayed committed, I believe it's possible I could do it. It's the same thing with learning an instrument, learning a foreign language. Uh, You have to stay committed, you have to put in the work. It doesn't just happen on its own. You can't just wake up and go run a marathon from your couch without any training whatsoever. That stuff doesn't happen. You start with a vision, you start with this picture of how is it that God wants me to grow? What does God want me to do? Where does he want to take me? What is it? Does he want me to forgive this person? Does he want me to to become a person who prays regularly? What is it that God wants from me? What is he calling me to? What does he want to drag me to? Uh, With my feet kicking and screaming, what's the vision? What does God want? What does spiritual maturity look like for me, specifically? Because if it's in general, won't happen. Specifically, what does God want from me? At one time in my life, I thought that what God wanted from me, what God wanted from me was I, I, uh, God wants me to love him more. Well, that's super generic, right? Specifically, what's that look like? Well, drill down to specifics. What is it that God wants from me to grow spiritually? Then you have to develop the intention the intention to do whatever it takes to let God form you into the kind of person he wants you to be. You have to submit to to what God's going to do to bring you to this point, to this goal that he has for you. You have to develop the intention. And finally, you have to commit to the means, the spiritual disciplines, the things that will lead you down that path toward maturity. And and those are specific. A lot of times spiritual disciplines where you're like, okay, I gotta pray more. No, no, I want, be specific. Pray about what? Pray when? Pray how often? You're gonna get up and set an alarm? How are you gonna pray? You gotta do this stuff specifically because I know us. We won't. I know me. I don't wanna speak for you. But without specifics, I'm not doing that. You gotta be specific. What does God want from me? Am I committed to doing it? And what am I gonna do? What part am I gonna play to open myself up to God bringing me to this place that I know I need to get to eventually, but I can't get there today? That's too much, it's too hard. Spiritual maturity is hard. It doesn't just happen. And that's why the very last warning in this passage, the very end, is, is don't be lazy. Don't become lazy. The difference between mature Christians and immature ones is that mature Christians have come to love God and deeply desire to grow and become more like Jesus. Immature Christians love something else more. That's the easiest way I can put it. Mature Christians love God more than anything and have this deep desire to become more like him. Immature Christians love something else more. 
They love something else more than they love becoming like Christ. Usually, they love uh, doing things their own way. You know, that's, that's usually what it's been for me. As I go through these seasons, uh, it, I find that what I love is doing things my way. What I love is the sound of my own voice. Students in the youth ministry will tell you, whenever there's a microphone in the room, oh, I'm talking on it. I love me the sound of my own voice, right? And, and I need to set that aside. I need to set that aside because what I want, what I think, how I feel, all secondary if I'm going to be spiritually mature. If I'm going to move in God's direction, it's what he wants, what he thinks, what he feels. It's his plan, not my plan. That's spiritual maturity. And that's the choice that's in front of us. My way or God's way? My way? The elementary, the basics, those are fine for me. I'm okay with all the basics. I love what they mean for my life. Solid food's too hard. I'm staying here. I'm going to suck on this Twizzler and drool all over myself. Whatever the spiritual equivalent of that is, I'm staying here. God's way, hard. Suffering, it hurts. It's confusing. It's the way of spiritual maturity, and it's what we're called to do. It's what we're called to be. My way or God's way? Let's pray. God, I don't like preaching passages like this. I don't like that you put this in your, in your word. I don't like that this is in the Bible. I don't like it at all. I don't like, I don't like it. It kind of reminds me of, of school. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff as I, as I grew up, a lot of stuff I don't like. But in order to be spiritually mature, in order to be what you call me to be, I don't have to like it. I have to commit to it. I have to commit to growing. I have to commit to moving in your direction. And so God, I pray I pray for the strength this morning for us to choose you, to choose your direction, to choose spiritual maturity, to commit to solid food and not just milk, to continue to move and grow in the ways that you've called us to move and grow. And God, I pray for strength because I know we can't do this by ourselves. So do you. That's why Jesus is greater. That's why we have this whole book about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So thank you for Jesus. And I pray for the strength to grow, to become more like him each day. And it's in his name. Amen. So we're going to sing a song here to respond to God's challenge toward maturity this morning. And if you'd like someone uh, to pray with you about your own journey toward spiritual maturity, you can come uh, forward here and, 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 and I'll pray with you. I know it's hard to see the screen when we stand, but at moments like this, I feel like we need to stand together. So why don't we stand together as we sing this song and respond to God?